0: Hello dear friends, it's Tim Clare here. This is of course Death of a Thousand Cuts and today I am, um, I, uh, it's a chat with RF Quang. I always resist interview, interview sounds a bit too much like a interrogation or implies some kind of sort of deeply probing mind uh, behind it. It's, or someone who just maybe doesn't interpose themselves giving their own answer to every single question but it is a chat which means there's a little bit of back and forth sorry that was unnecessarily defensive this early in the show i could have left that till later on um and we talk a little bit about her debut novel the first in a trilogy called the poppy war which is i mean she gives her own praise of it so you'll hear a bit about it in the show but it's the story of a character called rin in a kind of alternate version of song dynasty china and yeah there's different parts of history are kind of like um, mixed together and there's um there's and there's sort of supernatural powers in there as well and we just uh chat about it and about fantasy and about writing and about who gets to write what about what and representation and all sorts of stuff and it was um a very uh useful and useful sounds too, (laughs) sounds a bit clinical, it was really, really interesting and fascinating and I'm really grateful for her to, for coming on and chatting about it, if you are listening, well I mean if you're listening is a really stupid thing to say isn't it, of course you're, you're either, it's kind of Pascal's Wager situation isn't it, either you are listening and you can hear me saying this or if you're not listening then you won't hear it anyway so what a weird qualification, if you like the show then some of you will know i'm not going to i'm not going to go into this a, a lot in, in front of every show i think i'm going to like record one episode and kind of like just blurt out the the full pitch and then and then leave it with just a sentence every time i record the show because otherwise you will grow dear listener to hate me and i don't want that i'd love us to stay friends um but just just to, to avail you of the knowledge that uh, my new novel the Ice House is available for pre-order in various from various outlets and either in hardback or in ebook. So I would I would love you to pre-order it. Uh, pre-orders as I've said before make a huge difference to the book, the book's fate and to my career if you enjoy this show and you'd liked and you feel you'd like to support me, but at the same time get something back. Uh, I'm not saying that the je- main reason you should get this book is because you want to support me in my career. It will do those things, and pre-ordering it is a huge, huge, huge uh, uh, rock on the uh, on the on the balance scales of life. But um, it's also, I think, you're going to like it if you like weird fiction. If you don't like weird fiction, then my it's not for everyone it's not for everyone but who knows you know you, you, you i think it's worth a try but just be aware i admit it's not for everyone i write weird stuff and i that's what i love that's what i love in my heart so i've put a link in the show notes of today i've also put a a link in the show notes importantly to um rf Quang's uh novel the poppy war if you i'm sure listening to this your interest is going to be is going to be uh, excited and if you yeah like on my website uk or in the show notes there's a link there you can click through and get yourself a copy uh i you know i'll I'll leave ryan <laughs> i won't I won't pitch it to you because her pitch in the show is so extraordinarily good that um i think any any more pitching on my behalf would be um would only would only would only be uh painting legs on the snake. So, thank you very much for putting up with me. Uh, It's been a weird old week. It's been a weird old week with many highs and a few lows as well. But we're here at the end of it and uh, I'm just terribly, terribly happy that I get to do this show. I'm so grateful for your listening and I am full of admiration and gratitude to RF Queng for agreeing to be on the show and for sharing her wisdom with us so without further ado I'll hand over to me and her. Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer, one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare and this is a show about writing for writers and about for readers and for people who love stories and for storytellers and anybody who likes reading words on the page. Or even if you don't like reading words on the page, perhaps you like listening to audiobooks or even watching movies. You are welcome. And today I am talking to the author RF Quang. Hello, how are you?
1: I'm good, how are you?
0: I'm um I've had a coffee as you can probably tell. So <laughs> that's why I'm speaking a little bit fast. I had a coffee and there was a donut left over. So I've had a bit of sugar and I've had a bit of caffeine. And now and I'm very excited to speak to you as well, if I'm honest. I'm very excited and I think those three things are making me a bit much. So I apologize in advance. <laughs> no worries. So what I want to ask at the beginning as a way sort of into this, because there is there's so many things i want to talk about that i'm really i'm really kind of vibrating with uh anticipation but just to sort of to ground us in the discussion that's going to come i just wanted to ask when did you first realize that stories were something important to you
1: hmm that's a really difficult question um I guess I can't really pinpoint the time just because I grew up reading, I grew up, you know, being fanatic about Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings and all those genre classics and always being lost in daydreams, so really since, like, I could read, it was a form of escapism, um, so I can't really remember a time when stories weren't important to me, um... There's there's actually a funny story that I like to tell that my family, when we first moved to the States, one of the first movies that we watched in English was Star Wars, um, so I learned a lot of my English from Star Wars, like the scene where um, Vader goes, Luke, I am your father, like that's when I realized what the English word for father was, so huh. like, you know, stories huh. and sci-fi and fantasy are really closely tied to who I am, and I just really can't disconnect myself from that.
0: Wow, what? A, that's so incredible. And so, you know, you were watching stories and you were engaging with them and you were uh, learning the language. What was, when did you start making your own stories? Yeah.
1: Um, so, my first stories were also Star Wars fan fiction. Um, I have a really vivid memory of being seven years old and getting like a bunch of sheets of printer paper and then folding them over um, and then stapling them. So they made like a little pamphlet. And to me, that was so cool. It was like I had made my own printing press. Um, And then I wrote this like illustrated story of Luke Skywalker and in this story he was also seven years old and you know I was writing myself in as his love interest so we had to be the same age but somehow he looked like he did in the movies because when I was young I thought Luke was really hot um so yeah it was just pages and pages of zo- Luke like zipping around Tatooine on his um that floaty uh that floaty thing that he always wrote and um, like, me tagging along, and we, would like, fight the Tuscan Raiders together, um, so, yeah, so, I think uh, I started storytelling by inserting myself into stories that I was crazy about, because, again, um, I get lost in them a lot and daydream, and stories are often more interesting to me than real life, but I guess, like, once I became sentient, you know, and I'd peg that around uh high school or college. I realized that the reason I had to do this was because of the a lot of the stories that I loved didn't have space for somebody who looked like me in them. Right? So my brother and I would play act scenes from Attack of the Clones and they would we'd always feel like, Oh, we can't really be any of these characters because they're white. Uh, there's no one for us to mirror. And the same problem, like when it came time for Halloween, like I could only ever be Mulan or Cho Chang because I didn't look like anybody else in like Harry Potter or, you know, any of the other Disney movies. And so when I started to take writing seriously, I wanted to create stories where I fit in and people who look like me fit in. And I think, I mean, that's what the issue of representation boils down to for so many people.
0: Not to, not to undermine a very serious point, but my daughter's two and she's just started reading. She hasn't watched the Star Wars movies, but she's reading the, like, weirdly the way into it at the moment for her is the Lego Star Wars illustrated books. But um, the only character she identifies with me is Chewbacca. <laughs> she keeps pointing at him and saying Dada. Oh. So um, apparently that's the only character I'm going to get to cosplay is, is 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 a wookiee she she really thinks it's me as well but then she said that that her mother is um is uh, uh admiral akbar so i think i got <laughs> <off> lightly. wow <laughs> she that's was pleased yeah it is it is it is quite sweet she calls darth vader she refers to him as scary man and she I don't know where she's got it from, but she'll point to C-3PO and I say, who's that? And she waves her hands up and down and says, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. Oh.
1: Um,
0: Which is, I'm like, yeah, you kind of get it. really captures
1: the anxiety that (laughs) defines 3PO.
0: Yeah, I know. I was like, that's awesome. So, like, that's, it's really cool that you started. So, you, so basically you have this thing where you love stories, but there's for want of a better word something wrong with them right there's something or something that isn't quite satisfying you or something that doesn't for you exist in the stuff you love so how did you start going because that's like quite a daunting thing to go roll up your sleeves and go all right well what I guess if no one else is going to do this then I'm going to do it right
1: yeah um I I actually want to push back against the idea that nobody else is doing it um because th- it's a really common assumption that when an author of color puts out a work about their culture they're the first to have done it and i i really hate this uh and sometimes it's true but more often times it's not because it is it erases the work of everybody who came before them and the people they looked up to and it means that we're constantly restarting uh our genres as opposed to developing a tradition in which we fit and the people behind us fit so um people often say wow the poppy war like the first like." A uh, Chinese epic fantasy written by a Chinese American, and that's, like, clearly not true, like, Ken Liu's, um, dina- uh, Dandelion Dynasty came out, like, just a few years before the Poppy Wars did, and, like, did amazingly, um, and so I, when I was writing, I was really lucky in that there had been this whole generation of authors before me, like, Cindy Pon, I think, published the very first Asian inspired YA fantasy and she's written a lot publicly about how hard it was for her to get published and get those opportunities because time that time like there literally were no predecessors but she forged that path for us and uh, so many writers I know so many Asian writers look up to her because of that because it proved that there's space for us on the bookshelf so when I started writing I saw her work being published and I saw Ken Liu's work doing so well and that was so inspirational for me to know that even if the path ahead is hard people do want to hear my stories and there are people in the publishing industry actively looking to advocate for writers like me um so yeah it I'm I'm actually really lucky to be in this generation where all these writers have forged this path for us and we can sort of just ride on their coattails
0: yeah my apologies i didn't mean to imply um that no one had come before you rather that the media that you had been when you were talking about not being able to cosplay as the different characters that there was there was something uh lacking in the uh balance but yeah i mean, you absolutely i do i do apologize i absolutely misspoke in saying you know that you were the anyway the the first um to do this uh but that's a really and it's a really good point and you're completely right that so In the way we talk about these things. And I guess like, you know, part of it is that publishers are always looking for hooks and so they'll go, this is the first thing, this is unprecedented. But also it's a kind of a kind of laziness and ignorance, right, that people just are unfamiliar with anything but a couple of a kind of appointed linchpins of any genre, whether it be literary or science fiction or fantasy
1: yeah it is a frustrating problem where certain works get assigned as oh the definitive like chinese fantasy and this is the only one that we will allow to exist or acknowledge basically um but yeah i think there's so much more worth celebrating and not not being the first of a genre because it means that it's not niche anymore it's mainstream like it's a thing um that's very popular people buy into it um and that's so much cooler than, like, you know, writing the first yeah. Chinese fantasy.
0: Because then I guess that's the people are just being invited to only view it through that lens, which can be yeah. quite reductive when pe- readers don't have a multitude of different lenses through which to to view a work, right? Like, it's the, in the same way, I guess the same problem for ages was, you know, uh, Radcliffe Hall's The Well of Loneliness as being like, OK, this is the lesbian novel all other novels are in dialogue with that and it's kind of like um that's not true but there was a real there was a there were, people had a real problem with not making that the the conversation and i i think it's you know you're i think you're right that it can be really frustrating and reductive to only view novels in those turn and that's what happens when you kind of shrink the canon down
1: yeah exactly you start i mean audiences start seeing chinese stories as uh the same variations or variations of the same trope but i mean like there is such a diversity of china-inspired storylines like my work and fonda lee's work and ken lu's work they're so different from each other um and it's important for people to realize like the complexity and variety of experiences within one marginalized group because then we aren't reduced to you know the same quote-unquote diverse storyline
0: can you talk a little bit for anyone who sort of isn't familiar with it uh what the, the poppy war is about
1: sure so my two sentence pitch is always it's basically avatar the last airbender if azula was the main character and everybody was on drugs
0: <laughs> that's that's quite that's <laughs> quite a pitch i guess Okay, I'm just like now mentally reframing the story through that new lens, and yeah, all right. Yeah. Um, how did you How did you come to? How did you come to be writing? Because it's especially with something that has a an epic scope, right? It 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 always seems to me like trying to reverse engineer it. It's such a huge undertaking. So, where, what 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 were the first sparks that led to you? writing this
1: um that's kind of hard to say because the poppy war is really a combination of all the stories that i grew up with the stories i loved and the stories my family told me um but i mean i decided to write it when i took a gap year between my sophomore and junior years i went to beijing to work for a year and um during that time i was just in much closer contact with my relatives in china than i had been in the states i was talking to them much more often and my grandfather told me a lot of stories about his experiences during World War II and I started writing them all down and at the same time I decided since you know I didn't have homework for once in my life, I worked a 9 to 5 and then got home at the end of the day and didn't have anything to do, um, I wanted to complete a project like any project and it was either learning to code or writing a novel so I figured writing a novel would be easier Um, so I did that and just started working in all these stories, and for a while, it was very unclear what shape it was going to take because I knew I liked fantasy. Fantasy was the genre I was into at the time, and I tend to write what I enjoy. I don't... uh, I think my reading tastes have changed, so my next project will probably not be fantasy, but at the time, epic fantasy made a lot of sense. So I wanted to do that. I also knew that... um, So I'd grown up on shows like Naruto and Bleach, and... I really enjoyed, like, that style of, like, sort of youthful adventure, like, you know, shounen manga storytelling, so I wanted to include those elements. Um, But also, since I study history, to have strong inspirations for China's very bloody 20th century. So these all came together, and in the end, we worked out a compromise. It has the politics of the 20th century, but set in a more fantasy-type setting in the Song Dynasty, because I just think battles with swords are so much more fun than battles with... Um, you know, planes and tanks and guns, Um, and yeah, then it all sort of came together. Oh, I'm also really into Chinese mythology, so there is this book I had just read, the Chinese classic, the Feng Shenzhen Yan Yi, which is called The Investiture of the Gods, uh, in English, and it's just this really trippy saga of this huge epic war between uh, human factions and the gods who get involved, and it's really disorganized, and characters die and then show up again later, totally alive and fine. Um, and yeah, it's one of those epics that like doesn't really have a coherent storyline, but every episode is just so wacky and weird, so um, I mind that a lot for the supernatural elements. And yeah, those are, I guess, the disparate elements that all came together into the pretty weird work that the poppy war
0: is i'm so glad i'm so glad you said that because when i was reading i was like going oh this has got elements of kind of like a high high school sports manga (laughs) yeah with, with the kind of like different uh with the different characters and the kind of and the kind of like bully turning up and and just this kind of like format of things you know, we know that there's like these tests coming up, and um, I was getting a lot of the pleasures of that shape, um, seemed uh, really f- familiar to me, and I'm really glad you yeah, said that because um... I <laughs> thought, oh, this just shows that I, I, I need to sort of uh, have more highbrow reading tastes, that this is where my mind's going to. Um, but it's great that that is that's one of your influences because I really felt that in it.
1: No, my reading tastes aren't anything brow. I'll read highbrow and low brow and everything in between. And I think we all end up writing some variation of what we love reading. So, you can tell what I enjoyed.
0: Oh well, you me too. Right, that was I was like, <laughs> oh, great. I was like glancing nervously over at my copies of like my hero academia and going, oh wow, okay, yeah, fair enough. Um, I really enjoyed it. So, can you talk a little bit about um, uh, the protagonist uh, Rin and a little bit about the story behind that because I'm, I'm really really interested in um the journey that you're taking us on in this book
1: yeah so basically her character is an exploration into how somebody um basically goes over to the dark side uh when i was writing the poppy war i was reading a lot of biographies of mao zedong and i kept asking how does somebody go from, you know, backwater peasant nobody to this genocidal megalomaniac, um, and, like, I'm not really interested in sociopathy as an answer, like, the idea that, oh, he just doesn't have feelings, he doesn't care about human life is a really boring answer, and also not a very satisfactory one, because the more interesting question is, if we assume that somebody does care deeply about people and is trying to do the right thing um, and is going through a period as turbulent as China's 20th century was, um, what are the forces that, and what are the decisions they make that shape them into those kind of tragic figures? Um, so yeah, without giving too much away in spoilers, that's kind of what the character of Rin is supposed to answer.
0: Can can you talk about, is, was there any, that when you were reading through these uh, biographies of uh, Mao, I've got to admit to like a, a period in, in my 20s where I read almost exclusively uh, Mao biographies. I have a whole bookshelf at home that was just <laughs> every single one I could get my hands on in English. Um, is, was there any particular, when you were doing the research or when you were reading these biographies, was there any particular moments that you read that, Started to give you an answer to that or particularly striking scenes that you thought... that Because I know what you mean about, you know, if you're looking for something that feels poetically true and also dramatically satisfying because if someone is the same person at the beginning that they are at the end, then we haven't gone on a journey with them.
1: Um, my take on Mao is that he actually wasn't just an awful person, <laughs> Um which is, yeah, I mean... It they're it, definitely not trying to lie in is nice him or rehabilitate him in any way. And I think that Rin's trajectory uh, differs hugely in a lot of places because she's she's also a woman, right? And she's also much younger than Ma was when he rose to power. So she's facing a lot of obstacles that he never did. And I also think that deep down Rin is a better person. Um, I mean, they're they're both pretty brutal and awful, but. Um, um, Rin's drive comes from, like, like first and foremost, sheer will to survive uh, with the lot that she's been handed. And I don't think she's quite as nakedly ambitious as Mao was. Um, so yeah, it's it's not a direct parallel. Um, it, it was just the springboard uh, for this character. But I, I'm actually not interested in writing genuinely awful people. Like you know mao disgusts me um and rin also disgusts me but to a lesser extent because i can sympathize more with her
0: can you talk a little bit some people have and i i, I want to sort of run the definition past you before i sort of just append it to this book but um a lot of people have talked about the poppy war as being grim dark fantasy and i just wondered uh, what your relationship is with that sort of a diagnosis or genre and um tone wise what you feel you were you're going for with the book because like there's a lot of you know you you don't hold back you take us to some pretty dark places and um Not everything is sweetness and light in this world.
1: Yeah, um, I actually wasn't super-duper familiar with Grimdark as a genre when I wrote The Poppy War, but it's a word that keeps coming up in reviews of it, and this one reviewer called me Grimdark's darkest daughter, so of course I was going to put that in my Twitter bio because Hmm. it sounds so cool. Um, But from my understanding of Grimdark, it's violence and grittiness as an aesthetic, and I don't think The Poppy War really does that because there are many... um, segments that really aren't violent or gritty for the sake of being violent or gritty and the places that are uh are meant to display like actual war atrocities um and i i mean i don't want to like over generalize for all of grimdark but at least in a lot of grimdark books that i now have read you see awful things happen like especially violence done to women it happens at a startling rate for no point other than just to show oh look how brutal and awful this world is like oh those poor women will never learn their names um and in the poppy war that doesn't happen until um the rape of nanjing and that's quite a, an important plot
0: point what what do you what what do you think is the distinction i just want to drill if you don't mind i'd like to drill down in that into that a bit because it feels to me like a quite a important thing because i think often people say well i'm just trying to if i just draw a veil over violence i uh then or then then i'm somehow erasing it or sanitizing it but i think you're making a a different distinction to that and i just wanted to i was wondering if you could elaborate on that because that will that's generally the sort of not defense exactly but the justification i hear is people go well i want to show these terrible things including uh sexualized violence because it exists and uh if i don't uh, show it then i'm somehow sanitizing the world or erasing it or putting my thumb on the scale Uh, and i just wondered if you could if you could touch on that or maybe elaborate on what you mean
1: um i think there are two distinctions that are important the first is gratuitous Violence versus necessary brutality, and I find it really off-putting when violence is clearly gratuitous and used as an aesthetic, um, and serves no further purpose other than just to, like, enrich the world and make it seem cool and bloody, um, but, you know, there is no significant response to it, there is no meditation on, like, what we do to stop it, there is no... Uh, like the characters just accept it, right, and it's especially bad when this gratuitous violence is done to marginalized groups like women, queer people, people of color, and uh and oftentimes this is in a narrative where all the other characters are white, and it's used to be like, "Oh, look how awful this world is, like all the people of color they're dead, okay, moving on, next chapter, and that's just really annoying. Um, the second distinction is, I think that if you're going to display those levels of violence, the victims need to have some level of agency, of, of agency, and the story needs to be about them, as opposed to their their suffering being a spectacle, right, that serves as, like, some plot motivation for the main character, and then they just move on. Um, because, like, if, if you were not discussing... Uh, the victims and their responses to that violence and the world's responses to it then the only thing you've done in, in displaying that violence is sort of fetishized it and made it this spectacle of gore that's like um like a zoo exhibit where you point and say oh look how bloody how awful all right like let's move on with our lives like i, I really hate that so it's
0: uh the way i I think it was Adam Roberts who uh, he was reviewing something, and he says, "I'm not sure that this critiques the violence so critiques the abuse so much as repeats it." Mm-hmm. And I, I that really resonated with me as a distinction that I'd been struggling to get my head around. And I really understand what you that uh, that idea of spectacle of um, the violence that you're talking about that it's always something that's happening to the um, exoticized other is i think yeah really really important for people to have a think about and also because it's just like it's you know uh, 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 the bottom line it also makes it less dramatic if it's happening to people who the story consider to be a a, a second order of humanity yeah and that's what
1: happens to female characters all the time like books that center largely around men like in in those books the women exist to suffer. And that's, like, if you're not going to give them lines or agency or any bearing on the plot, then why did you show us this?
0: Can I ask a bit about, Um, I just want to, like it feels like an odd transition, but um, I wanted to talk a little bit about Key in your, in the poppy war. And you're, you're kind of like, I want to talk about your combat. I mean, I'm getting into slightly nerdy stuff as well, because I want to ask you about, like, I'm rubbish at writing fights, and I think you're really good at block. I just wanted to ask you a little bit about how you conceived of um, key, and I guess what kind of ends up being your fantasy novels, like magic system.
1: Oh, you mean you mean okay? I thought you meant key as in key e y. No, I, think, I, think I, I think, was I think like, sorry, problem. what? Um, yeah, yeah, no, I I understand. Um, yeah, I mean, actually. So the part of the magic system that deals with psychedelics and uh, drugs and, you know, accessing the God through your mind, in your mind, um, is like it draws on real religious traditions, like real traditions of shamanism um, throughout Asia that have been practiced for thousands of years. So um, guilty historian, I just rob history. Um, But everything else is sort of a syncretic mix of Taoism and then classic, like, very tropey Chinese Kung Fu, like, wuxia tropes of, like, Qi or Qi in the proper Chinese as this energy life force that you could learn how to channel. Um, So none of it is actually anything new. I think it was just a new way to package it.
0: And can you talk a little bit about, because you've got some, like, great training scenes where people are like facing off against each other can you talk a little bit about how you go about writing and because we talked about um gratuitous violence uh and you have you know you have sort of various uh fight scenes in it and i just wondered if you could talk a bit or reflect a bit on how you how you work to make a fight scene one like just basically comprehensible i often really struggle with this it's it's. I think it's surprisingly difficult, and I get a lot of messages from writers about this to describe two human beings moving in space in relative to one another, and to let the reader see that. Um, but also, how you um, keep those scenes sort of interesting, because it is possible to write incredibly boring fight scenes.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, hmm. I think. Okay, so the first caveat is that I think fight scenes, as they're stylized in fantasy novels, are just, like, so unrealistic, and they have to be unrealistic to be interesting, because real fights, they're over in seconds, right? It's just a brief exchange of blows, and then somebody gets stabbed, and that's it. Um, But, but, you know, as readers, we're not really interested in that. We want to see, like, a long back and forth, and I actually take my cue from... Um, a lot of manga fight scenes where uh, they're actually like um, they're mocked because they do it to such an exaggerated extent where the fight scene and the blows are all reflections of the characters and their values, right? So it's this constant back and forth where it's like one character briefly has the upper hand and then there's like this deep philosophical reason why they have the upper hand and then the other character gives a long speech about, you know, their opposing views on life and then like deals another blow and it's just like, it's both a debate and a clash of personalities and a fight at the same time. And obviously if you do it like they do in manga, it gets, you know, it's it becomes just a mockery of itself I mean you shouldn't do it that way, but um, I do conceive of fight scenes as not just you know pure physical interactions but also like every every blow that lands and every you know twist or the flipping of advantages has to do with something it can trace back to the characters themselves and the way they see the world and maybe not in that explicit terms and maybe it's a lot more subtle than that. But, you know, if Rin throws a punch, like there's a reason why she was throwing that punch. There's a reason why she was positioned to do it and trained to do it. And the reason why she she attacked first. Um, and I think that's how you make fight scenes more interesting than uh, an accurate depiction of them would play out. I
0: think that that's I think it, and I think it's it's a it's definitely an ideological position to for people to say, well, a fight scene, pure realism is the only correct way to represent human life in fiction and to represent fight scenes you know a lot of these things are stylized it's not like the reader doesn't doesn't know that but there's a kind of wonderful uh kind of metaphorical kind of psychomachia there where like you say these characters have got a position the type of blow that they're landing is you know whether they do kind of go for a low blow or a kind of, or something, or, some, or, or a yeah. block. I, I feel that, that really comes across. And it's kind of, yeah, it, there's a kind of ballet.
1: It's like, we want to see, we want to see not just the clash of like their years of fight training, but also the clash of everything that these characters stand for. And believe in like and we want to see that uh like in metaphor and represented through the blows so that's yeah those are all the considerations you have to balance while writing a fight scene and then once you realize that you sort of have to throw the idea of a realistic fight out the window
0: so one question i i i wanted to ask uh because i have lots you know lots of listeners i'm a fantasy author myself i'm completely on board the uh the fantasy uh, wagon. I, I, I love it to bits. Um, and a question I've often been asked, and so I want to pose it to you. And I realise by saying I've been asked by other people, I'm um, inserting a third imaginary adversary to blame for this question. But, um, you know, you said you were interested in Chinese history and Song Dynasty, but also mid-20th century history. And I often get asked, you know, why don't you just write a historical novel? why do you have to bring in these fantasy elements why don't you just grapple with the actual history rather than muddying the waters in this way i wonder i mean i would normally phrase it slightly less slightly less um, accusatory than that but do why why fantasy and why why not just engage with the history as it's known
1: um because fantasy allows us to envision alternate realities and like, we can't, I mean, if we're talking about literature for the sake of social progress, right, you sort of can't imagine, uh, you have to be able to imagine alternate worlds and alternate realities in order to live in a way that's different from how we live now. Um, so that's, like, my very philosophical response. But also, I mean, this moral imagination thing for me is really interesting, uh, and important because if we're just talking about historical fantasies, uh, or historical fictions, right, right? These are fictions in which marginalized groups don't have agency and um, are just being brutally oppressed at like every period in history. And I think it's really important to construct alternate liberatory histories uh, where those things didn't happen Um, just so and which is not like some sort of like counterfactual wish fulfillment but to be able to envision us in spaces where we have power and in which we weren't being dominated and in which we get to make all of our own choices like being able to like envision all of that is important for how we move forward in the future and is important for young readers um, to see themselves represented in narratives like that. Um, and then on the other hand like fantasy just offers so many good tools for refracting themes in history and like um, magnifying things or altering them. So we look at the world just slightly differently, but in a more interesting way. Um, so like, so I the way that it was taught to me at Odyssey, which was a six week writing workshop I went to, was that the novum is, you know, the new element that you introduce into the world that causes the ripple effects that changes everything else. So it, like, you know, a time travel machine can be a novum or, um, you know, the ability to uh, fly in space can be another novel. And then it's it's really cool to examine how one of those changes causes necessary changes in systems and institutions as people respond to that. And that's just like a such a brilliant and interesting thought exercise um, for anyone who's interested in, like, history or world systems or economies or whatever.
0: I, I, that that idea of yeah the this kind of one drop that you put in and then see the ripple effects i really like that idea that there's something kind of inherited inherently like liberating or uh it's like a really interesting moral exercise was that a pb shelley quote or something it uh, imagination is the uh, something about uh, the key tool of morality is the imagination or something I'm mangling the quote out of all recognition but um, that idea that it stops there's you know a lot of official stories will present history or elements of history as a kind of as an in, in, as an inevitability and um, as the only way things could have gone and often presenting it as inevitable for their own reasons right so by you introducing these fantasy elements, and by you reimagining it and having that liberation, you're you're pushing people to kind of like. I guess when you make one crack in something, then everything is loosened a little bit in terms of assumptions. Is that fa- is that fair? I don't know. I'm just
1: yeah, and um, not just that. Like for anyone who's interested in how institutions work and how, like worldwide systems like trade. Like economies, governments, alliances, militaries—how any of that works. Like it's just a really fun thought exercise to imagine how everything has to change if you introduce one fantastical or science fictional element.
0: Um, is there any character in the uh, in in the novel that you particularly identify with, or that you particularly see um, large elements of yourself in?
1: Um. Hmm. I mean I guess they all have like small fragments of my psyche, but I think they are all pretty dissimilar to me. I mean I have Katai's love of books, but definitely not his uh a photographic memory. And I think I have Rin's drive, but not her anger management issues or any of the other multiple issues she has. Uh we're actually quite dissimilar. Um yeah, and I don't, I don't see any similarities between myself and Nileja. Um, so he's just you know in a world of his mm-hmm. own.
0: Do do you consider yourself quite, uh, quite ambitious then? Because I I find uh, that's actually one another issue that I hear from lots and lots and lots of writers is the kind of this feeling of writing being a calling, um, and how that is kind of a blessing. And a curse, what's your real relationship with writing? Is it something that you experience a lot of anxiety over, or is it something that comes easily to you?
1: Um, I guess I used to when I was younger, and I say younger because I'm only twenty two but like um at like nineteen, I guess I did have a lot of anxiety over prestige and like material success and book sales and awards and all of that. but I mean that's a really unsustainable fuel to use for writing. Um, because at the end of the day, if it's not a story that you would have written just for yourself, even if nobody else in the world read it, uh, if it's not that important to you, then, um, writing purely for the material gains is not going to be very satisfying, and I think you burn out really quickly. Um, so as I've gone through, like, all of the anxieties of debut year, and all the ups and downs, and, like, the momentary thrills, and then the much longer periods of, like, why isn't anybody talking about me? Why isn't anybody talking about my book? Um, and also, like, having two other books under contract that I had to write, I realized, like, I had to search for the deeper um, drive within me, which is just to create good work, and that has nothing to do with the outside perception um, of how the work is received. It's just, am I making something that I'm proud of? Like, And as long as that's true, like, as long as that exercise is true, and the act of writing itself still feels really good then um then i think it'll be fine but yeah definitely i had to grow out of the writing purely out of ambition phase very quickly
0: um can you talk a little bit about writing a a series cuz i again this is something that i think uh science fiction and fantasy writers can particularly speak to particularly well in a way that um a lot of literary fiction writers don't get the challenge of uh writing linked books where they're continuing a character or continuing a world and I just uh I wanted to ask uh I you know I I I know or I assume that you're not finished yet, but um how has that been for you, that process of taking a world, finishing uh it being out in the world read by people, and yet it's still a world that you're in and you're writing and you're continuing.
1: Yeah. Um so the good thing was that I knew exactly how the trilogy was going to end. Um before I finished writing the first book, I actually didn't really want to write the first book because it just felt like a prologue to the much cooler stuff that I actually did want to write about. So I knew exactly what was going to happen to every single character and just like I had a clear uh, an outlined plot structure for the entire story. So hearing people's receptions to various characters and like their um, their con- like their plots conspiracies uh, thankfully it hasn't really made a difference because I'm just like, eh, that's cool, that's not happening, sorry, um, and I know a lot of authors, if they don't have a clear idea of where the story's going, like, will buckle under that pressure, and I, I had, like, two years between when The Poppy War sold and when it finally came out to just work on the rest of the trilogy, so it's in a quite, like, defined stage now, um, and, I mean, I don't really read rev- reviews, I only read the ones that are flagged to me by my agent or publicist, and those are like the really nice ones, um, just because like, at the end of the day it doesn't like really matter to me what people say, because it's not going to change how I write, and it's only going to mess with my mind to think about like some random stranger's thoughts on how I should be writing differently um and the only people whose input I need to listen to on how I should write are my agent and my editorial team because they're professionals and that's what they do um so yeah I just try to not let that enter my headspace at all and the solution to that is just not to look at reviews that's
0: do you not I mean I'm really interested that you say because do you not find I found that the I mean I, I have to say you are Your mental fortitude is light years ahead of mine because I find actually that kind reviews or nice reviews are the ones that have blocked me the most because I hear them and I go, oh my God, this person's going to be so let down when they read the next thing. And I feel like I've got somebody who I'm responsible for, whereas if someone says, oh, I thought this was ridiculous i'm like well you i don't have to worry about you because you're not going to read the next one if you didn't like this one uh, <laughs> can you give any advice for like people listening and this is me this is when i say can you give anyone advice i'm also asking for myself uh how you've kind of like developed this kind of like this sort of yeah e- e- emotional fortitude because i think that's really admirable, admirable and you're actually one of the f- one of very few writers i've spoken to on this show so far who seems to have um, to to have actually got that in hand and be managing it a, a, a lot of us are um a de- <laughs> a deeply broken individuals I just wondered if you I'm not asking for th- a therapy session but just like it,
1: you assume I'm not a deeply broken well, individual certainly not
0: in the way you relate um, to your work it seems like you've got an incredibly healthy attitude and I was just wondering um, how 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 you crack that so so early in your writing career and whether you've got any because also the second novel is normally where people come unstuck right again and again and again the writers i speak to second novel is where they're just going they're quietly dying inside because they thought they'd they're kind of like you know what it reminded me of when rin you know gets into this prestigious college and goes oh my god this is just the beginning now the level that i'm playing at is so much higher that's ex- that's i was like oh this is being published <laughs> i mean of course we see ourselves in characters. yeah i just wondered how or some things you've done any advice you might have for writers listening on how they can kind of cultivate that not to put you on a pedestal but how they can cultivate that slightly more um healthy relationship to how they think about their work and their creativity
1: yeah um so i've, I've had conversations about this with my best friend farah a lot um And something i keep coming back to is realizing that i'm always growing as a writer and there's always a higher bar to be set and always something you can be doing better with your prose so i try to read like one good book every week and write down all the things i can learn from it um and i also try to remind myself like the poppy war should be the worst book that i ever write um, because ideally every next book should be better right and I think there's this perception that we learn how to write and then we're stuck with the same set of tools and the quality of those tools and that's totally not true like the way you learn to write well enough to get published in the first place is by reading a lot of books and thinking about what those books did well and trying to emulate those authors and taking writing courses or reading books on craft and it's not like all of that just stops when your first book comes out or when you finish your first manuscript. Like whatever happens after that project, you still have so much room to grow. And it was it's also been really heartening seeing writers like NK Jemison and V. E. Schwab and I adore their work and I want to like write like a fourth as well as they can Um, but there's also like a clear trajectory in their careers where um, and both of them have written about this so it's not like some you know industry secret where their first few books did fine but they weren't like you know smashing bestsellers and then they kept writing and improving and writing better books so between like uh, NK Jemisin's The Hundred Thousand Kingdoms, which I read first and the 5th season, I think there's such a massive difference in quality. Um and I think like readers can recognize that too. So you're not stuck with the same like set of tools and the writing skills that you're given when you first start writing. You should always be swapping them in for new tools and reading books too and that's how you acquire those tools. Um and that's the attitude I take or uh, well, I took to writing the second book when everything felt like crap and I realized that's because I am crap at writing right now and I need to keep learning and growing and learn to write better so I turned to a lot of craft books I went to Odyssey and that was a life-changing experience and yeah I think the second book loads better than the first and like I was 19 when I wrote the first book I was 22 when I finished revisions on the second like that's three years it, it, there should be a massive difference in quality um just because people change so much between their teenage and their early 20s um and yeah if you think about it that way like writing your skills are always something that can be improved then you never get stuck and you never get frustrated with your work or the pressures because that just means there's more room to grow and if you ever like feel satisfied with your own work then you should go I don't know like one thing I do is go like buy up all the past winners of the hugos or the national book awards or the pulitzer or whichever award award i'm obsessed with that day and then like read a book that blows my mind and realizes i don't know makes me realize that i don't know how to write and then like dissect it and um pull it apart and see what that author did well and what i can learn from them
0: i'm i just assume that at this point i won't but i, I just assume that i uh, edited in a uh... Uh, an applause sound effect um I just yeah I just want to underline how um, amazingly insightful and um, and wise all of that is I really just think that is such balm for people to hear this kind of growth mindset that you've got that you kind of keep learning because it's exciting then and it makes it a journey and, it, and you it sounds like you've switched your focus to to process and to growth and those yeah. two things are Things you've kind of got control over in a way that you don't over sales. Yeah, and products. that's
1: part of the. That's part of the reason why I don't really care about reviews so much. Like I've seen bad reviews, but they they sort of lost their sting because now I see it as I produce a book, I put it out in the world, and then I really just immediately forget about it. Um, because that was something that I wrote, I felt proud of it. That was the best I could do at that stage of my writing career, and like now it's time to look ahead into the future and write the next thing better, um, whatever it may be. Um, and I, I hope that I always just get better and better with each book and that I don't regress. Fingers crossed, knock on wood. Um, but yeah, that is the goal, to not ever rest on my laurels or get obsessed with how a current project is doing. But You know, like I have no control over that anymore. So it's time to work on the next thing. Can
0: you just very quickly, I just want to just you mentioned going to Odyssey and it's a life changing experience. And I was like, oh, that sounds that's cool. But it's just occurred. It's occurred to me that a lot of listeners might not know what we're talking about. Would you be able to just explain that? Because it seems like that was fairly pivotal for you. And six weeks is also like that's a long that's a long time. People go on like five day writing retreats. And so you went and did this thing for six weeks. Can you talk? Would you be able to talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah, I'm happy to advertise Odyssey anytime. They don't pay me for this. I just really, really believe in Odyssey. Um, It is a six-week speculative fiction writing course um, that focuses on short stories, but I went and was like, I'm never going to write a short story. I don't understand them and I don't like them and I would like to just work on novels. And Jean said, fine. Um, Jean Cavellis is... um, the instructor odyssey so odyssey is different from the clarions which are the other really prestigious writing workshops in that we have the same instructor Jean, for the whole six weeks and she used to be an editor at double day i believe and then uh recently stopped working as an editor and now and just teaches writing um and she's basically the gandalf of writing like she knows more about plot and character and editing and craft than anybody i've ever encountered and She's very tough love, like, she tells you all the things you do wrong, but then builds you up, um, in the most useful possible way, and it's just, like, what I learned in six weeks is mind-blowing, like, I attribute everything I know now about writing to Jean, um, and yeah, I mean, six weeks is a pretty big time commitment, um, so it's not an option available to everybody, I did, like, sell the trilogy before I went to Odyssey, so, um it's definitely not something that's necessary but if you like do have the privilege to go to a writing workshop then I highly highly recommend it
0: wow I love here. It's one of my favorite things is talking to writers when they talk about like an important mentor figure in their lives somebody who you know it's, it's interesting to me how many people have got someone or several people who are like pivotal to them and the Gandalf of uh Creative writing is just a what a wonderful title to bestow upon someone.
1: It's not an exaggeration; like she is that good.
0: That's so cool. No, I'm just I I absolutely believe you. It's just it's such a wonderful thing to uh, hear hear about somebody. I was wondering if you um for people who are listening who uh, want to write themselves or are working on something, um I'm wondering if you've got any. You know, I hesitate to use the word. Uh, tips because it sounds a bit reductive but have there been any particular insights that um have marked sort of like changes for you or steps up or little sort of uh epiphanies that you think might be useful for uh anyone listening who's working on a novel to share some kind of like moment where you went oh oh (laughs) um
1: yeah so one thing I'm uh big on right now is just reading as a solution to like everything like I found that every time I get writer's block if I just read a good book it doesn't matter what genre like any good book it always snaps me out of it um and I think this works on a couple of levels the first is that just reading good writing makes you want to like starts the creative gears and your brains working again and you start thinking about like how you could emulate that good writing. but also like so I was stuck um, on this sequence in the act the first act of book three, but then I was reading Fonda Lee's Jade City and so I was really stuck on the pacing and the transition between these two scenes and then something very similar happened uh in the second act of Jade City and that was like a Eureka moment and I was like oh my gosh like that's how I should do it so it's not like I stole like the plot of Jade City but I did steal like that transition and um basically yeah like the pacing blocks that she used for that and I was like that's exactly how it should feel because when you're just writing your own stuff you get so caught up in Um, your own words that you forget like what good stories are supposed to feel like I think and if you just read a little bit it'll it'll remind you and also bring fresh techniques to your own work Um, so yeah that's like my uh, one-size-fits-all remedy to like all writing problems like if you're stuck on something just go read a good example of it yeah I think it's
0: it's so important for people to hear that and I absolutely what you're saying about you know spotting like someone do a good move you know as a as a story shape and especially like how to get out of a scene I struggle with that so much and actually yeah. forget that your shelves are covered in books and you just take them down and go I've got actual examples of how people end scenes should we look at a scene it's such a it's such weird how you yeah. overlook that as a strategy to look how people have done it
1: yeah and then you have an excuse to read good books and that's always fun <laughs>
0: Yeah that's fantastic it's yeah and I think people get scared oh I'm going to read something and I might end up it be too similar to what I'm doing and I'll get influenced but it's good to be influenced by good books
1: yeah. right? Yeah yeah I used to have that fear too I used to like there was a Six month period where I just couldn't read any contemporary sci fi fantasy, because um, it would just like mess with my mind too much. Like knowing all of my contemporaries, like people I was friends with, like knowing how good they were at writing would really like discourage me. But now it's the opposite. Like I read to get encouraged by the good work that everybody around me is producing.
0: First of all, thank you so much for um giving up your time to um talk to me. It's been. I always kind of come away from these talks really sort of buzzing, but like slightly light-headed, as I feel like all these genuine—I am not joking—all these insights are now going to take a while to percolate, and I'll probably have like really gnarly dreams for two days, and then I'll have like assimilated all this new information and insight. So, thank you for that. um The, f- the final thing I sort of wanted to ask, and I do ask it to all. Authors of whatever genre is—I just wondered if you could talk a bit about what you see the state of the. It's a big question, but what you see the state <laughs> of the genre, like um, fantasy, at the moment, and where you see it going.
1: I think we're in a really cool era of sci-fi fantasy right now. Um, I think the genre is more diverse and exciting and innovative than it's ever been. Like. Um a black woman just won the Hugo Award for the third year in a row for each book in a trilogy and I don't think that's ever been done before. And K Jemison, she's like my hero. And if you haven't read the Broken Earth trilogy, you absolutely should. Um and yeah, it's just people I mean, it's still like definitely not all fixed, right? There's still so many issues of access and privilege and imbalance, but at the same time, they're, people are opening up spaces for voices that have never gotten the chance to tell their own stories before and that's really really exciting and also like so many writers now are like to go back to the very first thing we discussed they're coming to the genre and realizing that there's somebody who looks like them who writes from their culture who's already been published and not just been published but published by like a big five publisher has won major awards and like has mainstream success and they look at those people like I did at like Ken Liu and Fonda Lee and Cindy Pon and they realized like maybe I could be a writer too like maybe I can tell my own stories and I'll be able to break into publishing and that's so encouraging and exciting so yeah I I think the ball has started rolling on more diverse and uh interesting stories and I think I just hope it continues to build like it's it's a really cool time to be a reader right now
0: thanks very very much for um chatting today i really really appreciate it and i will say um anyone listening anyone listening that sounds like i don't think anyone will be listening of course loads of you are listening but there's specifically the person who's listening now um I'm, i'll put a uh, links to all the novels we've mentioned today including of course the the poppy war in the show notes and uh, on my website timklepper.co.uk so you can go there click through the link and uh, have a read i i, I fully uh Somebody, I'm sure that you've been won over already. Um and if people want to uh follow you online or um find out more about that your work, where can they go?
1: Um, I'm most active on Twitter at at Quang RF. My author website is www.rfkwong.com and you can find that by googling me or just going to my Twitter. And sometimes I post pictures of food on my Instagram, which is also Quang RF.
0: <laughs> nice. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks for having me. This is a lot of fun.:
0: Oh, I'm so glad for you um, and everybody listening, uh, thank you for listening, and I hope you have a fantastic and joyful and productive week of writing.